Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Filippo Menozzi, uh, author of World Literature, Non-Synchronism, and the Politics of Time, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Filippo Minozzi is lecturing post-colonial and world literature at Liverpool John Moores University. He's the author of Postcolonial Custodianship, uh, Cultural and Literary Inheritance, and his work has appeared in journals such as New Formations and Historical Materialism. Hello, Filippo. Hello. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, congratulations on your book. Uh, so, in your book, Thank explores you. the issues of time. To be precise, you look into how our perception of time can shape the understanding of the current moment, as well as how the way we see and understand time influence how we read and speak about literature. Uh, You shift emphasis to non-synchronism and you provide your arguments for the validity of such approach. Would you elaborate on your understanding of non-synchronism and why it's worthwhile incorporating this concept, non-synchronism, into how we read today? Thank you very much. And this is a wonderful question. <laughs> and uh, OK, so, um, well, uh, you I think you described extremely well the main point of the book. So, uh, of course, uh, the question of time uh, as uh, something which is about uh, history, uh, how we perceive events and the historical processes around us, but also about the literary representation is a key element of this book. Uh, now, in order to... Uh, uh, tell you a bit more about the concept of non-synchronism and how, I mean, why, why I wrote <laughs> this book and how it came about. Uh, I just wanted to mention uh, something, well, uh, going a wee bit from academia, from the world of academia, uh, a general trend which I've seen uh, in recent politics around the world, uh, from India to Brazil and the US and Italy too, Um, which is a kind of uh, return of the past uh, in political rhetoric and uh, ideologies that are emerging today. Uh, I think in the US, probably uh, the most uh, blatant case would be uh, Donald Trump's motto during uh, his election, when when he was elected, uh, make America great again. So, you know, when when all this started to happen, I was intrigued by this uh, term again, uh, mm-hmm. this recursive and uh, kind of reference to the to the past, to an ideal of America um, that uh, doesn't seem to be uh, alive anymore, and yet uh, is the 
task of politics uh, you know in this uh, kind of logic to to restore so i was intrigued by this uh, return of the past uh, uh, as a force as a weapon uh, uh, in uh, contemporary politics and um so um i started to uh, to delve into this a bit a bit further and i came across a really uh, interesting and in my view really uh, timely essay by uh, a German philosopher, Ernst Bloch, uh, and this essay is called Non-Synchronism and the Obligation to Its Dialectics. So um, uh, this, this essay was also part of a, of a book by Bloch called Heritage of Our Times. And interestingly, Bloch uh, devised this notion of non-synchronism to make sense of the rise of uh, uh, Nazism in the 1930s in Germany. So I started to uh, reflect on these uh, parallelisms and uh, the idea of um, uh, different times, times other than the present, uh, informing uh, contemporary, the contemporary world. Um, and of course, uh, I mentioned Trump, uh, you know, thinking about Bolsonaro, Modi, and other <laughs> form of, uh, forms of hegemonic uh, politics. And um, I thought, you know, we can use this term, non-synchronism, uh, understood as this uh, reappearance of times other than the present today as a tool, as a kind of lens uh, to reinterpret uh, mainstream hegemonic politics. However, uh, it's not just... Uh, you know, like the, the repressive or regressive forms of politics, because also uh, good things, you know, movements of emancipation and liberation um, are, in my view, uh, animated by this um, non-synchronous idea of time. Uh, so um, I, I started to develop this uh, idea a bit further and to see how literary works uh, can represent these uh, non-synchronous forces at work in, uh, in our world. So um, I don't know if that explains, uh, answers your first question about non-synchronism. Do you want me to expand on the term a bit more? Uh, yes, um, please. So, okay. <laughs> uh, non-synchronism, I mean, going more in detail about this. Um, um, well, is the translation of a German term, <laughs> uh, Ungleichzeitigkeit. So uh, it's a complex, very long term, which has been translated uh, in English in many ways. Uh, Non-simultaneity, mm -hmm. uh, non-same-timeliness, uh, non-contemporaneity. And I've decided to keep non-synchronism in my book because uh, in my view, uh, our age, so-called globalization, uh, is animated by the synchronizing forces of uh, global capitalism. And so non-synchronism is a way of understanding this return of the past or times other than the present, more broadly, in the present, but also uh, how this uh, kind of temporal dislocation can be related to uh, the realities of capitalism. So uh, I decided to keep non-synchronism and uh, to build on S. Bloch's philosophy to make sense of the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. um, um, yes, uh, I also would like you to comment a little bit on how non-synchronism can shape our understanding of world literature. How does the very concept of time uh, contribute to how world literature is viewed? Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> that's a, a very important question uh, because, of course, uh, world literature as a, as a paradigm, as a way of studying literary works, uh, well, is a 
19th century concept originally defined by Goethe, but uh, reemerged in uh, in academia uh, in the, in 2000. It was an essay by Franco Moretti, uh, published in the New Left Review in 2000, um, which kind of revived this idea uh, for critics. And since then, uh, the concept has been debated widely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, of course, um, world literature is about trying to understand literary works beyond the nation. Uh, so trying to connect the specificities of local histories to wider uh, systemic tendencies at work uh, on the planet. Uh, so non-synchronism, in my view, is really central to understanding world literature because it's the way in which we can make sense of uh, this connection between local and global. So how um, you know we can see uh, um, wider economic processes uh, being a kind of realized in different forms uh, in different parts of the globe. Uh, so now, for example. Um, there is a lot of debate on climate change <laughs> and uh, the idea that we live in the era, as is known, of the sixth extinction. Uh, so uh, this attempt to preserve uh, uh, the planet and defend ecosystems from, for example, the extraction of natural resources is it, something that is going on everywhere in the world, from Lancashire to Alaska and Nigeria. But in every instance, of course, there are also local dynamics at work. So when you have a, a literary work uh, engaging with these issues, in my view, you need to understand all the temporal dynamics uh, which you know, situate uh, these things on multiple levels at the same time. So non-synchronism is an attempt to think all the multiple contexts of literature uh, at the same time together in their difference, of course, and uniqueness. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to go back to your remark that you made about returning uh, to the past, which is used uh, in some contemporary political um, uh, rhetorical statements. Uh, So uh, how would you... How would you describe this return to the past? Because there is no returning, right? To, to the past. We, can, <laughs> we can somehow instrumentalize maybe the past. We can somehow reuse that past. But this past will never be the same. However, it can be used for some, um, for some uh, present moment um, uh, goals, so to speak, or purposes. So um, how does this time is inserted probably or how this uh, how our understanding of that past time is inserted uh, into the present moment and how it changes the way we perceive the past events and the time of the past, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Since you mentioned some uh, uh, political figures and how they mm-hmm. use those slogans in order to gain maybe some um, uh, audience, but uh, still, it, it sounds to me as if the past is not um, is not repeated. Of course, nothing can be repeated, mm-hmm. uh, but um, there is some. Of course, political gesture to reuse uh, the past, but uh, I feel like something else is going on with our understanding uh, understanding of that past, which is somehow re-implanted uh, in our present moment. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, that's a very good point. Um, well, we have no access to the past as such or to the future for, for what matters. So uh, everything is mediated. And uh, as historian Fernand Brodel uh, wrote, uh, in a way, the past is that kind of unfamiliar that we use to make sense of the present. So, um, of course, uh, I'm, I'm sure historiography, well, is a science in many ways, <laughs> but uh, when history is uh, lived and experienced in, on the public sphere, for example, in everyday contexts, uh, well, um, of course, the kind of pasts that are being circulated and reconstructed are sometimes invented or imagined or projected. And that, that's the reason why they're interesting, probably, because they have uh, something to say about us, about the present. Um, uh, there is a critic, by the way, called Zletana Boeing, uh, who uses a wonderful distinction between, she, she wrote a, a really an important book on the idea of nostalgia. And she makes a distinction between, on the one hand, restorative nostalgia, and on the other hand, reflective nostalgia. So um, the ways in which uh, the past can become a source of political mobilization, for example, um, can be actively restorative <laughs> uh, in the sense of taking all this kind of past as something that has to be reconstructed uh, you know, as if it were like something that we, are, we really know uh, what it is, or it can be reflective in the sense of, uh, you know, trying to go back to the past, but with the awareness that after all, uh, this is somehow impossible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we need also a kind of a critical consciousness of how this past is being mobilized, if it makes sense. <laughs> so in other words, uh, well, I really uh, intrigued by the sta statement that our past is something that is unfamiliar. So in other words, the past can be some a space for rediscoveries and for uh, new uh, imaginative uh, projects as well, which can be uh, included in the present moment and, of course, projected uh, to the future. So, but I'm uh, very much intrigued by this statement about um, unfamiliar past. Of course, it does make sense. However, when you think uh, more about the statement, um, you see some uh, additional layers um, to that um, <laughs> to that idea. Yeah, of course. I mean, if you take uh, Donald Trump's uh, slogan, as mentioned before, like the kind of America that should be made a great, a great again, well, <laughs> what's that? I mean, what kind of America are you thinking of? So uh, it's the same in the UK with the idea of, Bre of Brexit, you know, the leaving the European Union. Uh, to go back to an idea of uh, the UK, of of, uh, of England in particular, that allegedly pre-existed uh, its joining of the EU, but in the end, it's a new invention. You know, as uh, um, Eric Hobsbawm and Teresa Ranger wrote, you know, all traditions are to some extent invented, uh, which doesn't mean that they're not true or that they're uh, by necessity ideological or false, but they are a construct uh, by, you know, so um, they are entangled in uh, wider processes and uh, objectives, goals, as you mentioned before, wider political issues. And of course, non-synchronism, by the way, is an attempt to make sense of that kind of unfamiliarity uh, that also you mentioned um, 
second ago. So uh, the idea of uh, considering like the present itself inhabited by these multiple times that are constantly reactivated and re recreated sometimes. Um, so, uh, of course, I think non-synchronism, even the long world, <laughs> the one who I use in my title, uh, is meant to suggest this degree of uh, unfamiliarity, uncanniness, uh, that the return of the past or the anticipation of the future uh, can create uh, in our, in the present itself, what Bloch called uh, the, the dark moment, the dark uh, moment of, of the now, of the right now. So, um um, I think it's in this way, non-synchronism can also become a, a powerful critical tool to understand uh, this kind of uh, phenomena and this kind of processes mm -hmm. um, today. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to um, uh, talk uh, a little bit uh, more about some uh, specific instances that you mentioned in your book. So you include a few chapters in which you uh, in detail explore how non-synchronism exercises a destabilizing effect. Uh, you mentioned the following about Mina Alexander's Nempali Road, and I apologize if I mispronounce any of these names uh, and titles, uh, set during the times of the Indian emergency in the 1970s. Um, Alexander's work shows the conflicting valences on nostalgic returns of the past in political struggle, non-synchronism as activation of unsubsumed remnants in the constitution of subjectivity agency. This is page 47. Would you say a few words about this novel and how non-synchronism works in this case? Um, yeah, thank you um, for this question. Well, um, Mina Alexander, who, by the way, uh, passed away um, not long ago, uh, um, um, so uh, wrote this uh, um, novella, this short novel, a uh, long time ago. <laughs> and uh, in part, the uh, the text is linked to her own autobiography autobiography, her own like life trajectory. Uh, but in my view, uh, Nampali Road um, reveals some wider tendencies at work in India at the time, but also globally, uh, you know, in our contemporary age, which is uh, in particular, what the novel reveals is the, um, the kind of um, shift <laughs> between uh, a mid 20th century moment marked by the history of decolonization uh, and then uh, 1989 <laughs> so um, this kind of the, the end of the cold war era basically uh, to a new phase uh, in history which is what is known today even though controversially as the uh, stage of neoliberalism so neoliberal capital uh, in my view uh, even if set, uh, you know, before uh, the end of the Cold War and so on, uh, that novel kind of anticipated some of the wider dynamics uh, at work here. So this kind of uh, emergence, historical emergence of uh, neoliberalism. And um, in this case, in particular, uh, Mina Alexander shows how uh, capitalism can become very authoritarian. I mean, there is no contradiction here between uh, a, a supposedly free economy <laughs> um, and uh, a political scenario which is uh, uh, totally repressive and undemocratic. And unfortunately, this is a tendency that we have seen uh, more and more recur recurrent and um, 
usual uh, uh, lately <laughs> in many parts of the world. Um, so um, non-synchronism in this, uh, in this kind of text emerges uh, on the one hand as this kind of anticipation of a long-term historical tendency uh, of which we are still part in many ways. And on the other hand, as the kind of subjective uh, appropriation of these tendencies in acts of political uh, intervention. So we have, on the one hand, a, a kind of uh, image of cardboard histories. <laughs> uh, so an idea of uh, um, kind of glorifying the anti-colonial past, uh, the figure of Gandhi, for instance, um, as a way of legitimizing uh, the, the state of the emergency and the, the current uh, government and systems of power. Um, uh, so this kind of recuperation of the past is meant to sanction uh, the new kind of economic regime that was uh, emerging at the time. And on the other hand, however, I'm always optimistic, <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> non-synchronism emerges also as a resistance against that. So as a recuperation of other kind of pasts, uh, in this case, in the case of the novella, really beautiful, the past of the involuntary memory is kind of a la Proust, <laughs> in a way, this kind of um, personal reminiscences which are mobilized as a means for political awakening in the protagonist. So we have two instances of, of reactivation of the past. One is, uh, you know, to, to ensure and, and kind of reaffirm uh, uh, the hegemony of the state. And the other one instead is to gain a political awareness of the present situation and to be involved in uh, the, you know, political uh, subversions and resistances going on. So non-synchronism, emerges here as a very dialectical process. Uh, I'm sure uh, the word dialectics and totality, which I use uh, quite a lot in this book, might sound a bit um, problematic to postmodernist uh, ears, <laughs> but uh, in my view, it's very important to have this kind of dialectical uh, concept of non-synchronism in which we see how the recuperation of the past uh, can have opposite political outcomes, uh, but all interconnected in many ways. So in the chapter, I try to, to show how the, the, you know, the novel is um, representing this in all its complexity and through the, the vicissitudes of the protagonist, who is the real kind of um, the, the center point, really, of all these dynamics. Mm -hmm. So the next novel that you mentioned is The Gypsy Goddess by Mina Kandesami. And yes. you know, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, no, no, sorry. <laughs> uh, and you know that the novelist is reimagined as a digger, excavating overlapping grounds of history and reassembling them in a metafictional, multidimensional narrative composition. I'm really intrigued by these uh, by these descriptions and particularly by a novelist who is reimagined as a, a digger. Uh, would you, uh, yeah, would you elaborate on that a little bit? Thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, the title of the chapter is an implicit reference to uh, a, a really fantastic essay by Walter Benjamin called The Author as a Producer. Mm -hmm. So, and references to Benjamin are present and kind of re, uh, reinterpreted throughout the chapter. Uh, in this case, the author is a digger because, um, well, uh, that, that kind of idea comes from the novel itself, because instead of chapters, the novel is organized in uh, grounds. 
<laughs> so um, the author herself, who is a brilliant, you know, contemporary, very young author, contemporary author from uh, South India, uh, is uh, reflecting on the act of uh, narrating uh, this, uh, you know, peasant rebellion she's describing through the through the novel, and what's her role as a writer? You know, how can you do justice to the past when you write about this kind of really traumatic and violent events? Uh, in this case of the 60s. So um, the idea of rethinking the author as a digger who's excavating <laughs> the layers of history in order to unearth uh, uh, the truth is a kind of a Benjaminian uh, uh, leitmotiv running throughout the chapter. And it, it points to an idea of history uh, as uh, a, a kind of process uh, by which we go back <laughs> instead of moving forward uh, as if history is going uh, backwards. And in doing so, uh, by going back to the, you know, um, strata that are like uh, beneath us, we rediscover unrealized potentialities of the past. So um, this uh, action of digging <laughs> the grounds of history, which is a, a dominant metaphor in, in the novel, uh, in my view, also signals how uh, literature has the ability to retell uh, traumatic pasts in a way that uh, can revise uh, the way in which history has been written. Well, history is always written by those who win <laughs> and those who are like then uh, become hegemonic who are like uh, strong so of course the point here is to retell history from the point of view of those who are defeated in this case um, and um, also uh, another like um, elements implicit in the title is uh, a conception of uh, history which was proposed by uh, an Italian uh, critic now uh, at the University of California uh, called Massimiliano Tomba, uh, who wrote a fantastic book called Marx's Temporalities. Uh, and uh, in this book, uh, Massimiliano Tomba reimagines uh, the historicity of capitalism as this kind of assemblage of strata uh, of different histories from different times, which are combined together and recaptured by capitalism uh, in new modes of exploitation or liberation as well. So, um, of course, uh, this is all part of this uh, debate um, among critics to reimagine uh, the historicity of capitalism beyond uh, teleological and unilinear Paths. So the idea that history is predefined, that we know where we are going, <laughs> and uh, so and that you know things like uh, can be uh, um, distributed in a series of steps or stages. Uh, of course, uh, the whole chapter is a, a response against this kind of stagist idea of history. So it's an attempt to reopen the past uh, and show that the past is very much still part of the present. Um, so I hope. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, um, I'm thinking about this notion of digging and a novelist as a um, digger uh, in, term, in terms of um, a postmodernist rhetoric, for example, because uh, it's all, uh, to some extent it does sound postmodern uh, and this idea of um, the uh, past that is present in the present and that to some extent shapes the future as well uh, also sounds a little bit postmodern to me. 
So, but a minute ago, you said that uh, you using some concepts like dialectical and totality that would be quite problematic for uh, postmodernists, probably. So, I would like to uh, I would like you to comment on this um, statement um, of the problem <laughs> that you mentioned mm-hmm. and how's the different. Uh, and uh, do you imply that? the idea of digging and digger will be different from the postmodern understanding of history. Yeah, well, <laughs> thanks. Well, this is a very uh, challenging and, and uh, fascinating question, of course. Uh, it depends, of course, what we mean by postmodernism. Um, in general, here I was referring to uh, the uh, vision, you know, uh, proposed by Jean-François Lyotard and after as a postmodernism as this kind of demise of grand narratives. So the idea that uh, history, because is we, we don't know where we are going, like history is not uh, predetermined. So. Uh, that's it. <laughs> so what we have to do is just lock ourselves in our minor narratives, our identities, and uh, this kind of fragmentary and even a bit relativist idea of uh, multiple histories or multiple modernities uh, all existing side by side. Now, in my view, uh, the digger, uh, the idea of the digger is a bit uh, against that because the digger is someone who is also putting all these fragments together. So in many ways uh, is recreating a, a grand narrative, <laughs> but one which is different from the hegemonic grand narrative of, in this case, you know, the Kilvemani massacre or the history of India or, you know, the history of capitalism. So you can scale up that. So in my view, uh, it challenges this postmodernist emphasis on multiplicity and fragmentation. But that said, of course, it means, I mean, it depends on what we mean by postmodernism, because Frederick Jameson uh, theorized another idea of postmodernism, which might be more like uh, suitable or more aligned with this kind of thinking. Uh, So, um, I do not uh, enter into these debates in the book, <laughs> but could be an idea for next uh, work. <laughs> uh, it's definitely something I'm happy to to discuss. Uh, that's uh, that's anyway the reason why I made that statement. So uh, the kind of postmodern thinking and postcolonial thinking as well, uh, which in the end um, ended up in this. Um, uh, locking of multiple histories in identity politics in the idea that there is no overarching uh, ideal that we all share. So uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we need to reconstruct these ideals, even of universality, of progress. Uh, we need these ideals, uh, even though they should be non-hegemonic, non-oppressive, and non-teleological. So, of course, this is a provocation, but uh, that's exactly the point I'm trying to make in the in the book. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and in your book, you uh, touch upon different times. Um, there is some uh, time of history, uh, time of memory, uh, time of myth, to say the least. And it's true that mm-hmm. all these times are quite different as they probably create different dimensions. 
Uh, what does this diversity and multiplicity of time manifest and uh, how multiple times can be managed? Uh, one of the ways is to arrange them in some sort of order, which probably will be the mm-hmm. opposite to non-synchronism. <laughs> However, is there an order when we think about time in terms of non-synchronism? I know that you, uh, just a minute ago you uh, touched upon this idea that um, the person who experiences uh, time arranges this time in their own order. So there is some order, but I wanted you to mm-hmm. uh, elaborate on a little bit on that order yeah. of non-synchronism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's <laughs> that's a great point. I mean, I don't see contradiction in this because non-synchronism is this tension between order and disorder or synchronism and its opposite. <laughs> so that, that's why I, I love the term, uh, precisely for its kind of dialectical and negatively dialectical dimension. Uh, so, of course, yes, uh, the kind of reconstruction and combination of all these times uh, implies some kind of order, some kind of um, togetherness as well of the times. Um, but the point of non-synchronism is to indicate that uh, any attempt to recreate a disorder is always marked by some kind of disorder or some kind of uh, disruption or disjuncture. So uh, that's why, I mean, the definition of non-synchronism is the, the combination of different times or the convergence of divergent times. Mm-hmm. So the point here is to keep both sides together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, absolutely, anyway, I agree that uh, keeping all this time, managing all these times together, as you said, especially in literary representation, in narrative, involves some even some kind of chronology. <laughs> so even if it's a, a dis- disrupted, uh, inverted chronology, but still uh, there is uh, there is an attempt to to reconnect and to combine uh, things together. And this is also why it, this goes beyond uh, the juxtaposition, the idea of juxta- juxtaposition and disjuncture, which uh, has become you know an important element of postmodern, sorry to go back to that, <laughs> and uh, postcolonial thinking. Um, in my way, by the way, this is a key aspect of world literature uh, as a concept because, uh, uh, you see, I, I come from uh, the field of postcolonial studies. That's my uh, specialism I've been trained in. And um, what literature emerged as a response to a kind of impasse of postcolonial studies and the kind of uh, fragmented identities that some kind of postcolonial politics uh, led to in the past decades. And world literature is precisely, in my view, this attempt to reconnect uh, all these fragmented times, these layers, these grounds uh, of history, uh, mythological, historical, and uh, narrative uh, all together, even though we have to be aware that uh, we can't trust uh, hegemonic grand narratives anymore. So is the attempt to think all of this at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that it's always a challenge to uh, choose those works that you will include in your book uh, to choose those uh, texts that you would like to analyze and to share your analysis with the audience. Um, so how did you choose your uh, novels? <laughs> Well, I was expecting this question, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, that's, uh, that's a, of course, uh, 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 something we all have to think all the time. So it's a very important aspect of our work. Um, well, I, I have to say, um, 
I'm not trying to create a canon of non-synchronic literature or anything like that. And many other works could be um, could be uh, interpreted from this point of view. So uh, I I chose um, works that could. Uh, could address different com- complementary aspects of non-synchronism and also draw some kind of uh, elective affinities uh, between different contexts. So geographically, the book spans from uh, West Africa to South Africa and South Asia. So it's a quite a broad comparative outlook. And um, non-synchronism is used here as a lens to uh, connect all these different contexts and to show uh, possible uh, grounds for for comparison and you know to to test uh, common elements across these contexts. Um, so I, I chose the books with this in mind. <laughs> uh, as I said, it's non-exhaustive; is is not a canon, and I'm sure. I mean, many other books could be uh, analyzed, uh, but in my view, these books uh, identified very uh, important, you know, key aspects of non-synchronism, including the ecological, uh, eco-critical one, which is addressed in the last chapter uh, on the idea of extinction and, uh, you know, the idea of metabolic restoration. So um, I try to to address all of this, but of course, I'm aware, (laughs) Uh, you see, it could be expanded uh, Mm -hmm. indefinitely. So I came across a novel called The Ministry of Pain recently, um, uh, which also has to do a lot with similar dynamics in very different contexts. So I, I'm sure this is a conversation that I try to start here or to continue here, but could be endlessly uh, explored in many other uh, areas and contexts. So I assume uh, you have a chance to share this understanding of non-synchronism with your students. How yes. Do, how, how do how do how do they respond? Well, well uh, I teach a is an undergraduate course um, uh, in my institution uh, on world literature, and of course I expose them to to these ideas, uh, which also come I mean from the particular uh, strand of world literary studies. Um, um, which is the Warwick Research Collective um, kind of um, model and paradigm of world literature. So students study and I respond very well because non-synchronism is about understanding the contemporary world. So um, I, I always connect this to things they could relate to. Uh, and uh, when, when I teach, it's a bit different from academic writing, of course. You, you try to be relevant and to build f- uh, from, from this kind of um, topics or situations students might be familiar with, try, you try to then guide them to a, a deeper understanding or some kind of open questions that could be useful to think through. Uh, so, for example, this year uh, when I teach uh, world literature, you know, online, unfortunately, <laughs> next semester, um, I will definitely, for example, mention how uh, something like Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. uh, if understood from a non-synchronous point of view, could be related to the, I don't know, the legacy of the civil rights movement and uh, how you can uh, relate, uh, you know, contemporary politics to, uh, to mobilization of the past uh, that take place in this kind of non-synchronous way, or even how something like uh, the Arab Spring um, 
the so-called Arab Spring, for example, could be seen from the same point of view as something that perhaps happened at the wrong time, so in a kind of untimely manner, and then relapsing into the violence and war we are seeing now in places like Syria or or Libya. So uh, when I teach non-synchronism, I always start from the real world. (laughs) And uh, because in my view, the concept itself is a kind of lens that can be used to to make sense of the world around us and the multiple temporalities when they reappear um, and the, how, how they do that and why they become so important suddenly out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, anyways, when I'm always learning from my students, so <laughs> I look forward, you know, this coming year to see what kind of responses I'll, I'll get from them. <laughs> um, and uh, one more question, which is related to the um, um, university level uh, teaching or uh, to uh, syllabus construction, so to speak. Uh, so uh, as, as at the beginning of uh, the uh, interview, you mentioned that you understand world literature as some intersection of the local and the global, and uh, world literature is some system that help us somehow understand, for example, the country, country, the state, some nation, as well as put uh, the nation, the country and the state into some global uh, context, so to speak. Uh, is my understanding correct that the concept of um, non-synchronism can help subvert uh, the um, uh, canon of world literature and introduce uh, some uh, like you said, non-grand narratives, but maybe uh, if we use the term non-grand narrative, uh, again, we support this understanding of grand narratives, but um, additional stories, right? Uh, To add to the canon of world literature additional stories. And in that way, to subvert and undermine this kind of uh, um, static maybe um, stable um, understanding of world, uh, world literature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a great point. Um, um, you see, the kind of idea of world literature I subscribe to, I kind of trying to develop in my teaching and my work, uh, is um, a bit set against uh, the uh, dominant ideas of world literature, uh, which are very uh, common, I know, especially in the US. And in particular, uh, you see the idea um, that uh, has become famous thanks to the you know important work uh, by David Damrosch. And, uh, you know, I think it's the Harvard Institute of World Literature. So uh, people like Damrosch define world literature as this kind of canon of globally circulating works. Uh, well, uh, um, some uh, scholars at work, in particular uh, Benita Farri and Neil Lazarus, uh, criticized that, <laughs> uh, saying that actually world literature should not be seen as a canon. Uh, and you see, there is a political question uh, mm-hmm. at stake here, apart from the academic mm-hmm. literary debate. And uh, in, in their view, you know, the, the view um, that Lazarus and Perry uh, elaborated, which I'm, I'm following here, uh, any text virtually can be part of world literature when it captures, it registers these wider dynamics of global capitalism and its lo- and their local kind of, you know, realization or appearance. So, uh, of course, uh, the books I'm, I'm analyzing in my work are non-canonical at all. <laughs> 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 and uh, absolutely, the word literature, in my view, should be 
this attention to the marginal, to the non-canonical, and to the defeated as well. So um, when I when I introduce world literature to my students, I because I'm teaching it as part of an English studies uh, BA, you know, a Bachelor of Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell them. Now you will unlearn <laughs> all the things you've learned in your degree so far. Uh, because, of course, uh, English studies is based on the idea of the nation, of a canon of key authors, uh, language, uh, you know, some kind of bordering of the discipline itself, which is the task of world literature to challenge and to uh, to question at least so uh, you see uh, the kind of world literature I'm, I'm drawing upon here is not uh, the kind of globally circulating canon mm-hmm. but uh, what uh, Lazarus and Perry describe as the, the register of the unevenness of capitalism so um, is most importantly literature depicting realities that are sometimes forgotten or not in the spotlight that we need to to teach and to write about. So I hope that answered yes, your question. Yes, of course, of course, <laughs> uh, absolutely, of course. Thank you. Uh, is your current project in any way connected with this book? <laughs> yes, um, I, I'm now working um, on the philosophy of Ernst Bloch. So um, recently I found the concept of militant optimism, which uh, Bloch defined in the first volume of uh, his uh, masterpiece uh, trilogy, The Principle of Hope, uh, a really powerful, really fascinating concept to understand what's going on today in terms of civil unrest from Belarus to Hong Kong to Santiago, you see. Our age is defined by, um, you know, by return of politics, mm-hmm. of uh, squ- uh, squares and streets, the reappropriation of the public space, which is a beautiful thing to see, you know, something that needs to be fostered and, and continued. So in my view, S. Block is the thinker we need <laughs> today mm-hmm. to think this new wave of, of optimism, of willingness to, to participate, you know, to reappropriate to the kind of uh, structures we inhabit as citizens. Um, and uh, that's why I've, my, my next project is kind of building on the idea of non-synchronism, but also going beyond that to rethink uh, political agency today. So I think I'm moving towards uh, critical theory and, and politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, good luck on your uh, future project, you. on this project <laughs> and future project as well. And thank you so much for um, today's discussion. And again, congratulations on your uh, book and uh, thank you for your research. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Today I spoke with Filippo Minozzi, author of World Literature, Non-Synchronism and the Politics of Time, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 